You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Each year, approximately 155,000 new cases of large bowel cancer are diagnosed. The lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer is 5% in low-risk women, but significantly higher in others. Today, we are joined by Dr. Steven Stryker, a professor of clinical surgery at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, to talk about genetic and environmental factors that contribute to the development of colorectal cancers. Welcome, Dr. Stryker. Thank you. I'd like to, of course, start with the usual disclaimer that while we're at the same hospital and have the same last name, Dr. Stryker and I are not related and, in fact, spell our names differently. But let's move on to risk factors. I think we all recognize that genetics can play a large role in the development of large bowel cancers. Can you talk about who is genetically at risk and specifically about some of the familial syndromes? Okay, sure. Well, first of all, all malignancies of the colon and rectum are related to gene abnormalities. They're due to the sequential mutations in a single clone of cells due to point mutations along several different codons. So they're all, in essence, genetic diseases. Certain instances of colon and rectal cancer are familial in nature in that the individual at risk carries one or two of these gene mutations already in their DNA, and therefore the odds of getting a third and fourth mutation, which would result in the malignancy, is much higher than in somebody born without any of those mutations to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned, of course, that every single colorectal cancer has a uh, gene mutation. So are most colorectal cancers sporadic or familial? Well, about 90 to 95% of them are sporadic in that there are few or no relatives who've previously had that malignancy. But somewhere in the order of 5 to 10% are due to detectable mutations, and therefore you'll see an increased prevalence in those given families. And do these mutations play an equally important role in colon and in rectal cancer, or is one predominant? No, I think the mutations are the same. The only differentiating factor is the anatomic location of the malignancy and the treatment, but otherwise the etiology or the origins are identical. And can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the known syndromes, such as familial polyposis or the Lynch syndrome? The one that's best characterized is a familial adenomatous polyposis, known by the abbreviation FAP. That's due to a mutation, a germline mutation in the APC gene on chromosome 5. It's a rare disorder occurring in about 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 8,000 births. But the significance is that if left untreated, uh, it results in colorectal cancer 100% of the time. That is an autosomal dominant mutation, so half the children of someone afflicted with this mutation also carry the same mutation and are at the same risks for cancer development. And while that's the most widely studied of the genetic mutations leading to colorectal cancer, it's still fairly uncommon and represents less than 1% of the colon cancers we see. And when someone has one of these mutations, is the onset generally earlier than in someone who's a a random colon cancer? Yeah, the typical 
phenotype is that shortly after puberty, the afflicted individual will begin showing benign polyps in the colon, and not one or two or three polyps, but hundreds, if not thousands of polyps in the colon. And there's the inevitable progression to cancer, typically by about age 40. And how about the Lynch syndrome? The Lynch syndrome now goes by a, a different name. Now it's called HNPCC, which stands for Hereditary Non-Polyposis Colorectal Cancer Syndrome. And that is the result of a mismatch repair gene mutation. And there are three or four of those that are currently identifiable. The mutation results in a high incidence of cancer in those afflicted, not 100% as with FAP, but typically about an 80% risk of colorectal cancer. And it does occur at an earlier age than in the general population, typically before age 50, but not typically in the teens and 20s as with FAP. The other significant feature of uh, HNPCC is that there is an increased incidence of other malignancies, specifically endometrial cancer in women, to a lesser extent, ovarian cancer and other genitourinary tumors. And while we're talking, of course, about cancers in women, there's a lot of data, interestingly, that the BRCA mutations may also be related to colon cancer. What is your understanding of that? I do know that there is a slight increase in the incidence of colon cancers in both men and women with the BRCA1 and 2 mutations, but it's not a drastic increase. So it sounds like that's not as significant a factor. Correct, yeah. Well, genetics, of course, can't be altered, but there are a number of environmental factors that also contribute to the development of colon cancer. So I'd like to move on to discuss some of these factors, particularly the preventable factors. Which do you think are the most significant environmental factors? Well, when you look at large population studies, you can get a sense for what features in that population contribute to a greater or lesser incidence of colorectal cancer. And certainly, it's debatable as to how that applies to an individual subject. But when we look at large populations, we know that those geographic populations with a higher consumption of fat in their diets or a lower consumption of fiber in their diets have an increased predisposition to colorectal cancer. We also know that obesity and perhaps even more importantly, inactivity are associated with increased risk of colorectal cancer. So one of the things that's felt to be very useful in preventing colorectal cancer is just uh, daily exercise, and it, be it walking, climbing stairs. doesn't have to be vigorous exercise, but some exercise on a regular basis in population studied has uh, been associated with a decreased lifetime risk of colon cancer. Is that a new finding? I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, that's in in the last couple of years, but that's been verified and documented and is now being, you know, one of the things we're championing as well as the others. So get up and move. You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Stryker about risk factors for colorectal cancer in women. Well, as far as other preventable factors, what about the role of alcohol, cigarettes, all the nasty habits? Those have been shown to be risk-producing abuses for the development of colorectal cancer. And it's a little bit more difficult to sort out whether those are independent risk factors or not, because uh, quite often people who have one of those habits also have other dietary 
or lifestyle factors that may predispose to the colorectal cancer. Now, as a gynecologist, of course, I spend a lot of time talking about human papillomavirus, and we now know that this virus is detected in up to 80% of sexually active women, and it's increasingly common for women to engage in anal intercourse. So do you think the increase in anal cancer that we're seeing is related to these factors, the prevalence of HPV and anal intercourse? Well, certainly a rare malignancy of the gastrointestinal tract, which is anal canal cancer, which should be differentiated from garden variety rectal cancer, which is unfortunately not uncommon. But the anal cancer is still uncommon, but yet the incidence has increased uh, about 10 to 20 fold over the last two decades. And researchers have determined that the number one etiologic agent is the presence of uh, human papillomavirus DNA embedded in the uh, DNA of these tumor cells. So quite analogous to the findings with uh, cervical cancer of a half a century ago, we know now that human papillomavirus predisposes to anal cancer as well. And I think as physicians, we need to be aware of this and spend a little more time counseling our patients about the consequences of this behavior, which is becoming increasingly popular. What about the woman with inflammatory bowel disease? Is she at increased risk of developing a large bowel cancer since we know that inflammatory bowel disease is more common in women than in men? Yes. Longstanding inflammatory bowel disease is a predisposing factor to colorectal cancer. And in fact, with uh, Crohn's disease, which can affect the small intestine or small bowel as well as the uh, colon, uh, it's been known for quite some time that small bowel cancers are increased in patients with longstanding Crohn's disease. The risk factors for development of colorectal cancer and ulcerative colitis seem to be related to an earlier age of onset of the colitis, the extent of the disease. So someone with ulcerative colitis involving most of the colon has a higher risk of colorectal cancer than someone who has the colitis just involving the lower end or the rectum. And uh, and then obviously the duration of the disease. So we begin to screen ulcerative colitis patients for colorectal cancer after about the 8th or 10th year of duration of their disease. Well, I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Stryker, for helping us understand the genetic and environmental factors that increase the risk and decrease the risk of developing a large bowel cancer. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But, you know, I saw this commercial for something called a Vista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, 
But I think for you, the benefits of a Vista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. A Vista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. A Vista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use a Vista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use a Vista with caution. A Vista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly Sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.